If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And I love this story. I know I say that about <laughs> nearly every story I read in the Bible, but I love this story. And this is one of those stories that I don't think it's really what it appears to be on the surface. Uh, and I think you can miss the point of this story if you're not careful. But I want to read in Luke 10, starting in verse 25. Are you there? I'm reading from the NIV. And I, I know if you have a heading in your Bible, it probably says the parable of the Good Samaritan. Interestingly, it's been suggested that this is not actually a parable because the Bible doesn't call it that. Jesus doesn't call it that. And the Bible doesn't say, and he told them this parable. Some have suggested that this is an actual event that happened that shocked everybody and that everyone in the crowd that day would have known about this as Jesus told this. I don't know. But I'm sure as he told this story, it shocked every Jewish member of the audience. So I want you to hear this this morning almost as if you are a Jew. And in fact, I guess to set the scene even more, I, I actually left this out of my message. But if you, if you want to know of the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. And the Jews had excluded them, so the Samaritans built their own temple. It was, it was kind of a church split, if you will. <laughs> and over in chapter 9, in verse 51, at, as it says that Jesus was set, to, set out to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. The Samaritans didn't welcome him because he was a Jew going to Jerusalem. Look at verse 54 of chapter 9. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> like you could do that, James and John. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Isn't it amazing how we love God's people sometimes? <laughs> Lord, do you want me to call fire down from heaven and just destroy them right here? Now let me read in chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is right after they wanted to call fire down. <laughs> you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
In reply, Jesus said, here's where it gets good. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the inn, and took care of him. <clears throat> the next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And I think it's interesting, he, he couldn't bring himself to say, the Samaritan. Look at verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And I want to talk to you this morning on the subject, the good neighbor, the good neighbor. Would you stand with me and let me say a prayer over what we are about to do? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, God, that you meet us in this place. I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak into the heart of all who hear this message. I pray, Lord, that you will bless the reading of your word and bless your servant as I speak your message. Put your thoughts in my mind, your words in my mouth. And let all who hear this message be changed by the power of your word and the power of your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask it. And everybody said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. God bless you. When, when I was a student in Bible college, I had an experience one night that reminds me of this story in the Bible about the Good Samaritan. And so imagine me a much younger version. And I had moved to Lakeland, Florida to attend Southeastern College of the Assemblies of God. And one particularly cool evening, and I know that sounds strange for Florida, but in the winter months, the temperatures can get quite cool at night. Um, and if you go out in the daytime dressed for the daytime temperatures, you need to be home before night or take a jacket with you because it'll drop. And one particularly cool evening, I was driving down I-4 between Tampa and Lakeland, Florida. And I drove past a car that was stopped on the side of the interstate. And this was in the days before we had cell phones to call for help. And as I recall, as I drove past this car, there was a lady standing next to it holding a sign that said, help. 
Now, I was taught, probably like many of you were taught, not to talk to strangers and to be very careful about stopping to help someone on the side of the road when you're by yourself because they might rob you or they might mean to harm you. But as I drove past this car, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, turn around and go help them. So I had to drive to the next exit and get off, cross over the interstate, get back on the interstate, drive down to the previous exit, get off, cross over the interstate, get back on the interstate. And I drove down to where they were pulled over and I pulled in behind them and I got out to help. And the strange thing about this, if you've ever wondered if God asks you to do something that you feel like you can't do, anybody who's been around me very long knows you do not want me working on your car. I am not a mechanic. In fact, I have learned that I can work a few more hours and make a little bit more money and pay somebody who knows how to repair my car. <laughs> but I pulled in and um, I got out and there were, there were three ladies there. There was a grandmother, a mother, and her young granddaughter, three generations. And the granddaughter was, it was a cold evening and she was shivering. So I gave her my jacket and I saw that they had a jack out and they had a flat tire. So thankfully I did know how to change a flat tire and apparently none of them knew how to use a jack. And so I got down on my knees and started working the jack and getting the, the tire loose and changed the tire. And when I finished, the grandmother handed me $20, tried to pay me for helping them. And I really could have used $20 at that time because I was a poor college student living by faith. And that back then would have filled your tank up with gas, not anymore. <laughs> and she tried and tried to give me that money, but that went against everything my parents had taught me about helping someone in need. And so I politely said, no, thank you, ma'am. You don't owe me anything. And she kept trying. I said, no, really, you don't owe me anything. And she said, well, then I want your name and phone number. I told her I was a student at Lakeland at the Bible college. She said, I want, if you won't let me pay you, I want your phone number because I want to cook a home-cooked meal for you and have you over for dinner. Now that lined up with everything my parents had taught me about helping people in need. So I said, yes, ma'am, I'd be happy to come and eat a home-cooked meal because I was living a thousand miles away from my home-cooked meals. And it was, I'm sure going to be good. So I went to their house a few days later. And as we sat at the table, I met the grandmother's husband, the grandfather. He was a retired citrus agriculture professor. And I got a lecture on citrus agriculture. I could teach you a few things about the oranges you buy in the store. And as we sat at the table, I remember the grandmother looking at me 
And she said, I want to ask you a question. She said, why did you stop and help? And I remember I hesitated because I didn't really know these people. And I, I, I was hesitant to say, well, God spoke to me and told me to go help you because I didn't want him to think I was crazy <laughs> and hearing voices. But I, I thought about it for just a second. And I said, do you really want to know? And she said, yes. Why did you stop? I said, well, honestly, as I drove past your car, God spoke to me. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and said for me to go back and help you. And she smiled and said, I believe that. Well, we had a wonderful evening. Her husband loaded me up with some of the best oranges I've ever had. I wish I could remember their names. In fact, maybe they're watching our program. If, if you are, please contact me. I have forgotten your names. I'd love to reconnect. Now, how many of you know not all neighbor experiences turn out that well, do they? I remember Mr. Rogers starting his, his children's show with the song, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, A Beautiful Day for a Neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? And it was basically a show about Mr. Rogers and everybody in his life. And they all got along beautifully and life was wonderful. And wouldn't it be great to live in a world like that again? But, you know, this world seems to have forgotten what it is to be that kind of neighbor. And everybody has neighbors. And most of us, if we took the time to go around the room, most of us have probably had some experience with a neighbor at some point in time that makes us want to go live on an island. You may have a neighbor that has two or three large kitchen appliances on their front porch. Or maybe your neighbor never trades in their used cars. They just put them up on blocks in the front yard until they rust away. Or maybe you have a neighbor that has a dandelion farm next to your beautiful yard. <laughs> you keep your yard cut and trimmed and they're over there growing hay in their front yard. And, you know, I've lived in the country where there's space between neighbors and I've lived in the city. And I've come to appreciate some space between me and some neighbors. And many years ago, in fact, when I was in Bible college, I lived in an apartment complex. Has anybody ever lived in an apartment complex? I decided I must have been the only one living in that apartment complex that had to get up early and go to church on Sunday morning because Saturday night, everybody had their music going and was partying. And I had one neighbor, I remember, that used to share his rooster with me. And inevitably, it was the morning after I had worked the midnight shift and that rooster would come down, so help me, I'm not making this up, he would stand right beneath my bedroom window and sing his heart out to his creator. And that was the best tasting rooster I've ever had in my life. No, I'm kidding, that's not true, I'm just joking. That rooster lived, lived to crow another day. But I want, I want you to know something about this story, just as an introduction to my message today. I want you to know that the story of the Good Samaritan and the question of who my neighbor is 
is so much more than a story about who lives next door to you. It has nothing, in fact, to do with geography. It is a story about loving and caring for people in your life. And you have to see that to appreciate the story. And if ever there's a story in the Bible that we need to go back and visit and learn from today, it's this one. As I was preparing to, to preach this message, I was thinking about what we've seen over the last few weeks and months and even years now of the terrible atrocities carried out against the most innocent and vulnerable people in our nation, young and old alike, even in churches and schools. And we wonder, how can this be? How, how can someone seem to have so much hate in their heart that they could do that to innocent people? And the answer really is probably much more simple than we've made it. And I'm going to spend just a minute here developing this, and then I'll get into the message, and I'll try to keep the message short. If my introduction's long, I'll try to keep the message short. But, you know, the Bible tells us that God is love, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. It tells us to love one another and even to love our enemy. And every time it speaks of that kind of love, it uses the, the word agape in the Greek or agapao in the verb form. And that seems to be a totally new kind of love that the world had never known before the coming of Christ Jesus to the earth. And Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 about the terrible times, the perilous times that will come in the end times. And he describes how people will be in the last days. He, he says they're going to be boastful and proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and the list goes on. And we're there. But in verse 3, he tells us something very important about the hearts of men and women in the last days. He says that in the last days, people will be, listen to this, without love and unforgiving. And we're there. So what does a person without love look like? Well, it's a person who has a heart full of hate. You either have love in your heart or you have hate in your heart. And Jesus even warned about this in Matthew 24. He was talking about the last days and he said in the last days, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And he said, because of the increase of wickedness in the last days, the love of, of most will grow cold. And we're there. I'm so glad Jesus said, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. But in these last days, people are going to have one of two things in their heart. They'll either have the kind of love that can only come from God or they'll have hate in their heart. And I've never seen so much hate in the heart of men and women as what I see right now in this world. And if ever there was a time when we need to go back to the story of the Good Samaritan and learn about the good neighbor and understand the concept of what that is and the, or the doctrine 
of the good neighbor, I think it's today. Now, let me get into this message. I want to just give you three points, and I won't stay too long on any one point is my plan. First, I want to talk about the lawyer with a loaded question. He introduces us to this nameless lawyer. Now, this isn't a lawyer like we think of today in our modern American culture. It's not a courtroom lawyer. This is a man who has studied the Hebrew scriptures until he is considered an expert in the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. How many of you have ever decided to read through the Bible and you struggle to get through the first five books? And especially when you get over to about Leviticus. And anytime I read through the Mosaic law, I find myself thanking God that I live under the dispensation of grace because there are just too many of those laws for me to keep. So this guy was probably a scribe or a rabbi, and his duties would be to copy the scriptures and to teach the scriptures in the schools and synagogues of the day. He was a professional theologian. He was someone that we would think of as having earned a doctorate in theology. He was the professor. He knew scripture and he asks Jesus a question that could be argued that it is a really good question. It's one that is asked of Jesus more than once in scripture by different people. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And let me just say, there's nothing wrong with wanting to know how to go to heaven. Everybody ought to be asking that question because nobody just goes there. There's nothing wrong with asking the question if you really want to know. But this expert in the law, and in fact, the rich ruler that's going to ask him the same question a few chapters over, is asking a question that he thinks he already knows the answer to. And he's not asking in order to find out the answer. He's asking in order to set up Jesus. He stood up to test Jesus. Now, I looked at the Greek here because I thought, I want to really understand what this guy was up to. And, and you might be amazed at what, what I saw in the Greek. The Greek language here where this is worded, that he stood up to test Jesus, it actually seems to speak of a baffling wind. It is sort of as if it's testing someone by, by blowing air in the Greek. You say, that's confusing. Now, have you ever, you ever been talking to someone and you go, uh, you're just blowing a lot of hot air? So that's what, this, that's what this expert's doing. He's just blowing a lot of hot air at Jesus. He doesn't really want to know the answer to the question. He wants to discuss the law. In fact, he, he doesn't really want to know the answer to the problem because he doesn't even know what the problem really is in his own life and in his own world. He's not seeking solutions because he really doesn't know the problem. See, we have a lot of people doing that today. I don't mean to preach on politics, but you can't solve a problem if you don't even know there is one. 
And if you don't know what the problem is, you'll never find the solution. I promise. And that is the problem with trying to solve our own problems in this world. With everything that's happening, all the horrific atrocities, the best solution people can come up with is to discuss law. <clears throat> you know, if we could just pass the right law, if we could just pass one more law, we could probably stop all this wickedness that's happening all around us in the world. And there's still an assumption of having the right law to solve problems. Now, Paul wrote about this in the New Testament. He said, nobody is declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So in other words, the law doesn't make anybody righteous. All it does is declare somebody guilty. All it does is make us aware that we are sinners. It's the law that makes us aware that we need to be saved. But the law doesn't save anyone. And if this guy was really an expert in the law, you would think he would know that. Because he would know that there had to be a continual sin offering because it never takes away our unrighteousness. Paul went on to say, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's how we're righteous. So the problem was this man wanted to justify himself by showing his great knowledge of the law and he didn't even know he wasn't even good at loving his neighbor. Let me explain something here about the, the, the law. How many of you have ever read the Ten Commandments? We could probably even name, oh, five or six of them just off the top of our head. But did you know that that's just ten of six hundred and 13 total commandments or laws that God gave them in the Old Testament. 613. You want to play by keeping the rules? You got to know them all. And what makes it worse, these scribes and, and guys, guys like this expert, they started having to explain the laws. There were so many. And so he, they started writing explanations of the laws. So there became rules to follow in order to fulfill this rule. So there were layers of laws. And within those, for example, keep the Sabbath holy. That's one of the big 10. Well, they managed to come up apparently with 39 categories in an effort to define work, because we can't work on the Sabbath. And within each category were subcategories of how we define work. They even got to the point where they identified how many steps you could walk on the Sabbath day before it fell into the category of work. They even, they even determined how many letters you can write. You need to write yourself a note? Well, you can write this many letters 
before it constitutes work. They had rules upon rules upon rules. And by the time Jesus shows up on the scene and this expert in the law asks this question, there are thousands of rules to keep. Kind of like our laws today. The problem with rule keeping is that when God says, don't do this, and we start defining what this is, we will inevitably want to do all we can up to what is excluded. If the law says, do this, love your neighbor as yourself, well, we got to know who neighbor is because I don't want, there's some people I don't want to love if I don't have to. I mean, I want, I want to go to heaven. I want to do what is absolutely necessary to not go to hell. I mean, don't we, don't we sometimes live as close to the world as we can without crossing the line? <laughs> I see I'm preaching to the choir. I'm going to move on. So when so it's a loaded question when he says when he says you know what must I do to inherit eternal life he should have known first of all you can't do anything you have to be something Jesus says well well what does the law say because you want to talk about the law well it says love God completely love your neighbors yourself Jesus said good answer go do that and he said well well if I'm going to do that I have to know who is my neighbor? You, 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 you don't even know who your neighbor is? And you're an expert in the law. I mean, don't get me going. Let me talk to you about loving your neighbor. Because that's where this all goes to. If you ask Jesus a loaded question, don't be surprised if he gives you a loaded answer. If you try to set Jesus up with a question, don't be surprised if he sets you up to reveal what's truly in your heart. So this lawyer refers to a passage of scripture from the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. Deuteronomy 6, 5, Leviticus 19, 18 to be exact. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, I wonder if he had heard Jesus talk about these same two scriptures when somebody asked him one day, which is the greatest of the commandments? Because of all those thousands of rules, apparently they didn't agree with which order should be least to greatest. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, go do this and you'll live. But it says that this man wanted to justify himself. So he says, who is my neighbor? I mean, after all, I just don't want to love somebody that I if I don't have to, or some people I just don't want to. And so I don't want to do any more than what is absolutely required. I mean, if the law tells me to love my neighbor, I really need to know who my neighbor is. This is why Peter asked Jesus one day, how many times do I have to forgive my brother who offends me? Because, you know, I want to know exactly how many times because, boy, once he crosses that line, I'm done with that relationship. How much love do we have in our hearts? Where do we draw the line? 
I, I, don't, don't we want to do the, just the least amount necessary to go to heaven? But Jesus saw that the real problem, listen to me, was not one of confusion over who exactly his neighbor is. The real problem for this man was a lack of love in his heart for people. I mean, do you hear me? If, if you truly love people with the love of God, you won't be confused over the definition of neighbor. The problem is not a problem of understanding the word neighbor. The problem is a heart problem. It's a problem with love. And so I told you in the beginning, this is much more than a story of who lives next door. It's a problem of the heart. And in the last days, people are going to be without love and unforgiving. And so he says, well, help me define who my neighbor is. Watch me skip all of this stuff right here. See, the Bible, the Bible tells us repeatedly, commands us to love. Agape, agapao. We're to love one another. We're to love, it says, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. This is all in the Bible. Love the Lord your God. We're told to be rooted and grounded in love. We're told to bear with one another in love. We're told to speak the truth in love. And we're told to pursue love. And nowhere in the Bible that it commands us to love does it use the Greek word phileo, which is a different kind of love. It's always agape, agapao which is the very essence of Christ-likeness. It is, according to Scripture, what God is. God doesn't just possess love. He is love. Agape is the kind of love that is unconditional. It is, it is literally a product of your will. When it says God loves you, God is love, for God so loved the world that he gave, it is that he loves you not based on any lovable quality in you. His love is based only on his choice, his will to love you. And every time he commands us to love someone, it is the same kind of love. It's not based on any lovable quality in that person. Get that? because I'm about to introduce you to a Samaritan. The more, the more hate that fills the hearts of the wicked in these last days, the greater the love of God should be in the hearts of those who are saved. P Peter said, the end of all things is near. Therefore, he said, we need to love fervently because the end is near. So let me introduce you to a Samaritan. The previous chapter, they're ready to call fire down from heaven to destroy those Samaritans. And so Jesus tells this, this story in which there are only, besides the robbers, there are only four characters. There's a priest, a Levite, a wounded person, and a Samaritan. Kind of reminds you of the joke, doesn't it? Y'all know what I'm thinking. A priest and a rabbi walked into it. Okay. 
One writer explained the danger of what Jesus said. Imagine a Samaritan riding into town with a wounded Jew, let's say, over laying over his donkey and checking into a room. Imagine. One writer said a modern American cultural equivalent would be a Plains Indian in 1875 walking into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy on his horse, checking into a room over the local saloon and staying the night to take care of him. He said any Indian so brave would be fortunate to get out of the city alive even if he had saved the cowboy's life. Now, as I read this story, I don't know, these characters seem to be out of, out of place for me. One character seems completely out of place and even counterproductive, and it's the Samaritan. I want you to imagine with me, Jesus is asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus wants to show him not what you do, but what you have to be. Now, when I was studying theology in school, I actually studied about this particular parable. I remember it. I even wrote about it in a paper. I studied the, the writings of, of, of a scholar by the name of Croson, and he wrote about this very parable, and it seems to me that if Jesus wanted to teach love of neighbor in distress, he could have simply spoken of one person, a second person, and a third person, right? If he wanted to make a cut against the clerical circles of Jerusalem, he could have mentioned a priest, a Levite, and a Jewish layperson. And if his main point had been love of one's enemies, Jesus could have had a Jewish person stop and assist a wounded Samaritan. That would have been good. If the main point was helping the neighbor in need, the naming of the helper as a Samaritan before a Jewish audience would be unnecessary, distracting, and counterproductive, right? So at first glance, you would think it would have been better for Jesus to have made the wounded man a Samaritan and the helper a Jewish man. A Jewish man helping a wounded Samaritan, especially since Jesus was probably telling this story to an audience of Jews. And it was probably in a J Jerusalem setting. But Jesus' point is not to show that you're to love your neighbor or love your enemy, or it's not to show that Jews ought to love, that, that Jews ought to stop and help Samaritans. The main point in Jesus telling this story is to show this man that your problem is not one of understanding who your neighbor is. Your problem is one of not loving people. And so I'm going to force you to combine what seems to you to be contradictory terms, Samaritan and neighbor, or good and Samaritan. I mean, it just doesn't go together. Why would Jesus do that? I'm going to tell you why. 
Because when that expert had a problem understanding what the problem was, the only way for Jesus to help him love people was to put that Jewish expert in the law in the place of the wounded man. So he tells of a wounded man. A priest goes by. A Levite passes by. A Samaritan comes along and helps him. And at this point, you can almost see every Jew in the crowd go, And then Jesus asks the question that puts that man in the place of the wounded man. Who do you think was neighbor to the one who was wounded? And suddenly, this man knew who his neighbor was. The one who showed mercy to the man who needed it. And Jesus said, you go and be that person. You go and do likewise. Wounded people know how to help wounded people. If you've been wounded, you can be the good neighbor to others who are wounded. But until you've been wounded, you might not even know who your neighbor is. And you sure won't know how to love them. You see, I stopped on the side of the road many years ago to help someone in need. And I thought I knew what it meant to love people. And I didn't learn this in Bible college. But not until I was a wounded person did I really get it. Because when I was wounded, somebody came to help me. And a light came on for me. How many times have you all heard me say this as your pastor? You've got to love people. And if you have a hard time with that, don't be surprised if you end up the wounded one in the story. And if you have come into this place or if you're watching our program and you've been wounded, let me encourage you because you know how to love people better than those who've never been there. Amen? Oh, God, this world needs your love again like never before. And if need be, I pray that you put us on the side of the road and let us be wounded if need be to know who our neighbor is, to know how to love people again. Would you stand with me? Hallelujah. I thank God for the times I was wounded because it's made me a better person. It's made me a loving person. Don't ever be ashamed of your wounds. God wants to use them. Somebody needed to hear that. I want to pray for you. Hallelujah.
I love you, Lord. God, it could have been any one of us standing there before you asking this question. And God, you, you have put each of us in a place where we need mercy in order to show us how to love others who need mercy. And I pray that this message, this word, will just take root in our hearts. I pray for this nation that somehow, God, you will help your people to show the love of Christ to this awful world. I pray that you fill our hearts with your love. I pray that you take away hate from the hearts of people. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to know who our good neighbor is so that we can go and be the good neighbor to someone else. And we give you the praise and the glory, and we thank you for our wounds that help us to love. It is in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. That was a good amen. God bless you.